Welcome, everybody, to the Grumpy Economist podcast. Uh, we're going to discuss bubbles, especially what's going on in GameStop today. I have a guest uh, with me, uh, Owen Lamont, uh, currently at Wellington at Management. Owen was uh, with me in our youth at the University of Chicago uh, Business School at the time, now Booth School, um, where we were good friends and colleagues. Uh, Owen wrote some of the most classic papers, at least in my mind, about such events. Uh, starting with the three com palm event and a wonderful paper about short sellers uh, versus um, invest versus other investors and firms. Uh, today's uh, Grumpy Economist uh, post discussed some of Owen's wonderful work, so I thought I'd bring Owen on uh, to discuss it with us. Welcome, Owen. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. <laughs> So uh, I guess what the topic on everybody's mind, let's, let's just start off free form your uh, two cents about what's going on with uh, GameStop and the other things and, uh, and the other stocks. And then we'll go on to larger questions and what this all means. And is it all 1999 all over again? So my thought about that is 1999 might be a good description of what happened in last year in 2020. But in terms of the disruptions that are happening this month or this week, that's that's something different. It's something maybe new, but it's not really that much like 1999. It reminds me more of various short squeezes um, that were not in 1999 and that typically happen in isolated uh, stocks. The most famous example or the biggest example is Volkswagen in 2008. I don't know if you know that one, John, but... Tell, did, um, well, my listeners don't, our listeners don't, so tell us the story. It's a complicated... Okay. <laughs> um, like many cases of short squeezes, it was a complicated situation involving some traders who needed to deliver shares who borrowed, who involved derivatives and corporate action and all kinds of complicated stuff. But basically... Briefly, for like a week, Volkswagen suddenly skyrocketed in price because of this disruption of the securities lending market, and it became the most expensive stock in the world, or the big, biggest market cap stock in the world, briefly. So that was a case where like, you had this huge disruption of market prices for identifiable, I would say, mechanical reasons, and there were all sorts of lawsuits and stuff, but it only lasted a, a week or maybe by different metrics, maybe a month or two. And it went away. And that, that I think, was not really, could not really describe that as a bubble. That was more like uh, manipulation or perhaps unintentional, um, unintentional mechanical thing. So I, I think in the situation we find ourselves this week in, I think it's good to hold on to the part of economics that you and I both agree on and everyone should agree on, which is supply and demand. And there is really a lot of primitive supply and demand going on in, in the market. With, with shares and with shorting and all that stuff. Well, that's, uh, we'll get to sort of the deeper issues. Um, in, in stocks, one of supplier demand, I can never get straight which one it is, is supposed to be horizontal. And uh, the fact that it's not is um, uh, the interesting feature, either of the technical parts of the market or, or deeper parts of the market. Let's, let's go back to the, the short squeeze. I remember stories about uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt in the 1900s. This has been described as the uh, democratization of short squeezes since it was the little guys ganging up on the head fund, hedge funds. Uh, perhaps you can tell people that story and, and help them to understand the economics of what's going on here. Okay. Well, 
when you short a security, let's just call it Stutz Bearcat, the, 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 the famous uh, one in U.S. history was not Cornelius Vanderbilt. After Cornelius Vanderbilt, where there was the Stutz case, when you short a security, that means you borrow it from someone and later you have to give it back. There's a famous uh, quote. Let's see if I can get it right. He who sells a stock that isn't his and buys it back or goes to prison. So you're obligated to return the stock to whoever you borrowed it from. And because there's that, there's that obligation, it is possible. Uh, but basically a short squeeze, the, what I'm describing with the short squeeze with this uh, buys it back or goes to prison thing is when you mechanically can't get the shares to, and you, you're desperately trying to buy them and you can't get them back. Um, a, a more broader short squeeze is just, I bet against the stock. Uh, the stock goes up and I am scared and I buy it back. But generally a short squeeze is anything where the price goes up and there's a lot of people who are short the stock and they're either forced to or or uh, desire to uh, ent- exit their position. So you have a lot of buying. And I, I would I would say a short squeeze is kind of a mythical or it's a rare, uh, uh, a rare thing. People often think it's happening. It probably rarely happens, but there's certainly many cases where it does happen. It's probably not an everyday or let me put it this way. A short squeeze should not be happening in a liquid, robust, well-functioning market. Well, um, so just to, to clarify, so the way this works, and you can stop me when I say something wrong, uh, a short sale, I borrow a stock from you. I sell it. Uh, and then I, I hope to buy it back tomorrow at a lower price and thereby make money. Um, the problem is the price may go the wrong way and then I lose money. The difficulty is that this is, if I think it's going to go down over months or years, it could go up in the meantime. These contracts last only one day. So I have to reestablish the position and I have to put cash in. Uh, I have the, the, the horrible problem of all value, if you will. If, if the stock is overpriced, Tomorrow, it could get more overpriced and make shorting even more attractive, but I've lost money in the meantime. And I can't think of how many times we've seen uh, risk management go wrong where people forget that a a good deal can become a better deal and you have to put up a lot of cash uh, to keep in the good deal that has become a better deal. That's part of what, uh, even if you're not in a situation where it's impossible to buy back stock, that seems to be part of what's going on by the hedge funds here, correct? I think that's correct. it's it's not obvious that problems in the securities lending market have anything to do with the current situation. It's more just um, the stock is super risky. It could go up another $100 at any time, and you cover your short position because of that. Uh, so it's not um, in other situations that you meant, mentioned before, there's been problems in the securities market. So I'll, I'll advertise your uh, short sales against uh, a- against uh, companies, which the paper I love so much. I think you in my book, you get the record for the largest alpha ever published, which was minus 4% a month. And, and you get that in uh, situations where uh, companies are putting in place restrictions against short selling. Of course, that minus 4% is not tradable. That's the whole point of why it's there. But in this case, you are saying that there is not actually uh, restrictions on short selling. It's just that people who are kind of usually involved in it got wiped out. Is that correct? That's that's what I understand to be the case. And, it, and you could imagine a situation where a specific company uh, orchestrates or wants to cause a short squeeze. And that certainly had, that was, that's what my paper was about. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. It's more like a, a, another group of individuals are orchestrating the short squeeze. 
Ah, yes. So that's the interesting question. It's it's not one big Cornelius Vanderbilt. It's a, a group of people who seem to be coordinating their actions on the internet who are are working the short squeeze. Correct. That's right. And and if you look at academic studies of uh, short squeezes and corners, they often talk about evil, big pocketed speculators who are mechanically caught. That's the Cornelius Vanderbilt angle, and that doesn't look like it's the case here. It's not. Uh, one mastermind. It is a a group of people. Now, uh, but I, I want to. I still want to try to bring back 1999. Uh, I noticed in my more superficial reading of this than yours that there is an enormous amount of trading volume and volatility uh, going on. It's not just GameStop. It's breaking out. So it looked uh, superficially to me a lot like the three com palm of our youth, where there's a trading frenzy going on. Um, Everybody thinks they can get in and beat the other guy. The fact that it's a little overpriced doesn't really matter if you think it can go up another 20% before it eventually crashes. Uh, so, And that there is um, news. There's people talking about it on the various chat rooms. So the, the huge volume, the lots of news, um, the, the concentrated in individual investors, that, that all bring back you know, warm memories of our youth and our discussions about three-com-pom in the uh, business school lunchroom. Yeah, I totally agree that um, in this case, the huge volume is part of it. I think in the case of, of Palm, that was not a short squeeze. There were When Palm was created, there were no short positions. So that was like a different phenomenon. Um, in this uh, case, you, you mentioned news. I don't think there was a lot of news generating this phenomenon. I think it was uh, it was more of a um uh coordinated trading uh fun trading activity as opposed to news but i do agree it does have the same flavor as palm and it's certainly not the case that anyone was saying let's hold this stock and it's a good long-term investment for the next 10 years they were saying we're going to hold it for the next 10 seconds and um now i i, I know that it has that feeling there are there is an, an ethos or or a, a um, there is a sense in which some of this trading activity was not necessarily profit motivated, but was more just fun, fun motivated, which is kind of different than the spirit of 1999. Well, I, I think of anything involving the possibility of losing money is better having profit motivated, but uh, I'll take that point with you. Yes, I was, I was struck that um, 1999, there was an argument that this is the new thing, the internet, there's new technology out there like 1929, which also saw very high prices and very high turnover. Um, this one, there was some news, uh, apparently an investor had a plan to help GameStop go along, but these were not the high flying new technologies. Tesla, if it's a bubble is, is, you know, fits more in the 1999. And I was going to ask, uh, you know, why is this breaking out here? But it does some of the demand, uh, seem, you know, seems to be coordinated. Let's break the short sellers. But um, then on top of that, there seems to be a, let's call it a speculative frenzy of these guys who are in and out for 10 minutes or so uh, trying to get on top of the volatility of the price and just how high will it go? Yeah, I think that's both. There's both things going on. I mean, once something starts doubling, then you do attract the 10 minute guys and whatever the, the uh, uh, genesis of the doubling was it becomes self-sustaining or you could imagine it becomes self-sustaining so I do, I do agree that the, your emphasis on trading volume is is really a that is a true characteristic of this phenomenon now the other thing i learned from your papers um 
is that uh, short sales are a way of generating supply of shares. So I'm going to explain that for everybody else because it's something that I didn't know and you taught me. So I'll teach them. Uh, let's say A has a share. Uh, B borrows it from A and sells it to C. Now both A and C can be long. So short selling is the way we have a supply of shares. And as a fixed house supply is what leads to house price bubbles, not enough share supply. Supply curve should run in here. A flat supply curve could stop the price bubble and just let more and more people have the quantity of shares. So there must be something stopping this mechanism for producing share supply. Um, as you, as you taught me in 3CompOM, it was designed to stretch the supply by, you know, one and a half maybe, but not designed to stretch the share supply by 10, because that means every share has to be borrowed and sold and borrowed and sold by 10. But we must be in a situation where share supply is limited by something right now. Although you said there aren't uh, big short sales constraints going on. Right. So I, I think the share supply you're thinking of, okay, so let's go back to 2020. If you think in 2020 that there was a a bubble, say, in electric vehicles, then one mechanism, so that means there's a lot of people who want to buy electric vehicle stocks. One mechanism for satiating them, as you say, is for us to short you and me or somebody else to short them and create more shares. Another mechanism is just for electric vehicle companies to issue more shares. And that is what we have seen. We have seen a huge IPO boom, um, just like we did in 1999. So that part of it, I think, is... Um, when you think about a bubble, you think about the demand, the supply of shares is too small. We've got to have these optimists who want to buy shares. We need more supply. How do we get supply? We get supply by issuance. I don't think that's a good way to think about the current situation because issuance is something that takes weeks and months to arrange. You can't just suddenly double the number of shares tomorrow. Uh, there are various legal and regulatory things. So that's, I, I do agree that um, ultimately, you're never, if you have an infinite, just like, let's go back to Volkswagen. If Volkswagen was massively overpriced, the right thing to do would be to Volkswagen to issue more shares. And there was a specific reason they couldn't in that situation. So totally agree that issuance is uh, both a signal that something's overpriced and it's the way of solving that overpricedness. Um, so I, I want you to sort of scratch my Chicago economist itch. Um, uh, if we regard these things as problems, which uh, Washington has immediately said it is, it would seem like um, uh, getting share supply out there would be a good thing, uh, making the regulatory barrier smaller or making it easier for people to take long term short positions um, would be a good thing. Um you did mention in, in your beautiful uh, short sellers versus companies, you mentioned that a lot of our regulations are there to prop stock prices up, to hound short sellers to the four corners of the earth uh, and not recognize their socially important role. Um, so is there is there grounds for saying, look, we could put a stop to this craziness uh, with at least getting out of the way, if not uh, even institutional reforms to help uh, provide more share supply, either fundamentally from the companies or from from other people who are able to take uh, long run short positions. You know that's a complicated question. Um, that's why I asked I, you. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is certainly true that historically short sellers have been an oppressed minority, and the whole events of this week—it's just you know—it's like a witch witch burning mob. Um, they're, they're just targeting the people they usually target, which are the short sellers who are seen as evil. Um, and I, I would think that if this 
so, so that's one aspect of it. Um, the other aspect of it is what we're really looking for, John, is for people to take the other side by, by selling the shares that are too high. And I'm not sure that, um, I'm not sure that people, even if it, even if it were perfectly possible and legal to short these stocks, the problem isn't that you can't short the stocks. The problem is you can short them and they might double. So I would, I would think that what really is the matter with our capital markets and the thing that concerns me is that this is like the flash crash or like the stock market crash of October 1987. It is a lack of liquidity. No one's on the other side. And you are revealing you, you do not have a robust liquid market. I think, you know, you and I are economists and we want the prices to be right. And something is pushing the prices out of line and there is not a countervailing force. Um, so I would think that the I don't know, but I would think there's two things going on. One is it is easier for would-be manipulators, or let's just call it, it is easier for sentiment or or selling pressure or buying pressure to arise thanks to the internet. Um, that's the that's the thing pushing the prices, and for some reason there is less liquidity and less uh, uh, less arbitrage capital on the other side. If you could imagine like a group of people trying to push up. Uh, a stock price in 1980, they couldn't have because there would have been uh, specialists who would, there, there were various mechanisms uh, for stabilizing the stock market. And so my concern is somehow, whether it's regulation that um, limited arbitrage capital after the GFC or something about the way markets are organized or liquidity, somehow our markets are illiquid and I would call them rickety. Um, this is this is exposing weaknesses in in our capital markets. Uh, that the capital markets, it's just it, 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 they, they seem. I don't know. I don't know if you want to call it a up crash or a mini bubble, but whatever it is, it's not a robust liquid market. Yeah, and, and we've seen signs of that uh, all over the place. I remember the soft tooth patterns in Coca Cola. Um, in some sense, they're 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 liquid. They're machines playing against machines, and you need people in there. I do think um, we think too much of arbitrageurs. Uh, this is not about arbitrage. It's about who's going to bear some risk. And uh, we fundamentally, the theory of finance requires that um, that when something goes wrong at GameStop, all of us jump in and take a little bit of that risk, which which we don't. You know, who owns GameStop? Well, I hate to say I do. Why? Because all my stuff's indexed. And <laughs> if you, uh, I, that means even though I, I agree with you on Tesla being overpriced, I'm owning Tesla. Why? Because it's in the Vanguard total market portfolio in proportion to its thing. To its, its. Now, there we would expect the kind of guys in their basements who are being held responsible for all this stuff to be the force for good um, because they are the ones who, who come in and take a position and hold it. Uh, this is not something you get rid of with leveraged arbitrage, one thing versus another. You just have to say, well, all of us right now, should we don't have to short GameStop. We just have to not hold it. We have to just sell it. And that would provide a, a lot of uh, shared demand. But, um, you know, we don't, which is, uh, you know, mo most of us are out of the market on a day-by-day -day basis. And uh, maybe institutionally we should. I mean, John, I think you have a kind of benign view of these guys in their in their mother's basement. They are using leverage, and the way they're using leverage is through the options market. And that's another way in which this is different from 1999. And and, and you've talked about, uh, we both talked about in the Palm case, how there was this disconnect between the options market and the cash market or the, or the stock price. And we, 
today there's a different story where some would argue that the current situation is caused by options trading um, and the short squeeze is uh, uh, coming from the options market, the gamma squeeze. So that um, the leverage is not some leveraged hedge funds, but it's some leveraged guy buying uh, call options. So I don't know if that's true, but I, I wouldn't have thought. Um, I, I think you and I are on the same page that we need to make it easier for uh, institutions to short things that are overpriced. And there is a bias against uh, people uh, shorting. I'm not sure that's exactly what's happening in this situation. I think this situation to me is more reminiscent of maybe uh, DeLong, Summers, Schleifer, and uh, Waldman, that um, you've got this noise trader, that you've got this volatility that is uh, creating its own space. No one wants to touch it because it's so volatile and therefore it's illiquid and therefore no one wants to touch it and therefore it's volatile. So there, there's some kind of bad equilibrium we are we have somehow well, arrived. Push you on this, though, so you have this, still this vision that, that you and I sit in our basements. Well, in our, <laughs> oh, we're not in our basements. We're, we sit in our Zoom rooms and we do nothing. And then there's some leveraged ARPA treasurers who makes all the prices right. Whereas, in fact, you know, in the fundamental theory of finance, um, we should at least uh, not be owning this stuff. We should sell this stuff um, when it's clearly overpriced. If it, so I have this convenience yield view, you know, you have a different view, but it's clearly not a good investment for a long-term buy and hold investor like us. Um, yet we don't, we're not doing our part there now in part, um, you, you know, that, that would be short-termism. There's, uh, for example, if I don't buy and sell stuff cause I don't want to deal with short-term capital gains, uh, and I don't want to learn to, you know, just deal with the taxes of it. Um, maybe, but, yeah, maybe that's, um, I, I know that we spend a lot of our time telling people that indexing is good. Um, and it, I think indexing is good, but maybe that is the role of delegate of active managers who are owning GameStop and are paying attention. And if I were long, um, that, that they can see uh, situations where the price is too high. And so even though uh, you might own a stock in your Vanguard extended market, if you had an active fund, that active fund could uh, rebalance. And so maybe that is the source of this lack of liquidity I am decrying. I don't know. We, we, we certainly need someone able to sell short, uh, sell short the overpriced thing, whether it's a short seller or some other long guy. It needs to be someone. So this has, in principle, shaken a little my faith in, in indexing versus uh, active. Um, you know, who owns the wrong end of arbitrages? Three common palm. Well, I do because I have an index fund which has to buy a little bit of everything. Whereas, if or any quantitative strategy that doesn't look at the names will be on the wrong end of our. Now, you don't make a lot of money. It's kind of like you know Susan's good housekeeping tips for finance, but you you could make a little bit of money just by not being in these things, and that would provide the stabilizing event we're looking for. Let me ask you two other questions before we we run out of time. One is that I, I want to ask the fundamental question. You and I have been a little bit at odds. You know who. Who are these guys? So I do, I think one thing I want to come away from the conversation is that we should all pay more attention to the supply end. Why is the supply not flat? But back to the demand end. Now, who are these guys? You and, and Dick had a wonderful line about them being woefully uninformed. And you once said that's a, a technical term for that, that morons was a technical behavioral finance term. I've been, I've been very resistant. Um, lots of our economists, I was watching the Twitter feed about this today, are, are happy with extrapolative expe expectations and behavioral and so on and so forth for this. But 
speculation has been going on for 400 years, um, at least. We don't know how information makes its way into markets. If people didn't speculate, we wouldn't have exchanges at all. Uh, everything in our models could be handled just by going down to the bank and, and rebalancing once a year. So the whole idea the whole idea that speculation must be chalked up to human irrationality seems to me kind of tough. Um, where are you on that? Uh, well, well, first of all, the many of the speculative models like Harrison and Krebs and stuff, they have nothing to do with irrationality or being dumb. They have to do with uh, short tail constraints and differences of opinion and dynamic trading. Oh, so you, still have you, to you don't need opinion. You, you have to get around the new yeah, trade yeah. theorem that says, yeah, yeah. if you say, John, that, let me tell what people it is. If you say, John, I got a Brooklyn bridge to sell you. Yeah. And even if I think it's a good deal, I say, wait a minute. If Owen wants to sell it to me, he knows something I don't know. And then that just stops trade. You need some overconfidence, something wrong to get trade going, which is always, but we see so much of it for so long. It seems so hard. Difference of opinion is not, is not wrong. Difference of opinion is just an assumption. So I don't think Harrison and Krebs, anybody's wrong. There's just the short self constraints might be wrong, but the beliefs aren't wrong. But anyway, um, so there's a lot, lot in your question. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, I, it's a, I wanted to tee up an argument that right. I think will go on for a long time, but that's, that's been my worry about the convention. Yes. I mean, I, I'm not proposing that, um, I know the solution of that there's this problem and that the solution is to ban trading. And by the way, the, the <laughs> secretary of state of Massachusetts, the state where I live has suggested a 30 day suspension of trading in the affected securities, which is which is one way to do it. And that's the way that's embedded in uh, like the New York Stock Exchange also halted uh, trading of some securities today. So just uh, one choice that the regulators might make is just to ban trading altogether, which I think, which is not what we want to happen because we want a, a free market with, with freely, with correct prices arrived through a liquid process. So that's it, hot in the news. I even retweeted favorably an, an AOC tweet on this stuff because what that is, is saying we're going to bail out the hedge funds at the expense of the uh, individual investors who did this. So that's uh well, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure that that statement is correct, but let, let's put that aside. Um, okay. I, I think uh, I would of course always want to um, respect the ability of individuals to trade here. Let me, I want to quote from um, your review of Peter Garber's book, Peter Garber's book about tulips where he's describing uh, the tulips. And he says, uh, let me just find this Um, something like uh, the, the tulip trading was just a, a bunch of guys in a tavern that were trading with each other. And here it is. Um, yes, yes, please. Uh, it's a great right. quote if you can find it. Yeah, here's the quote. A collection of people without equity making ever-increasing numbers of million-dollar bets with one another. With some knowledge, the state would not enforce the contracts. This was no more than a meaningless winter drinking game played by a plague-ridden population. So that to me, I have no problem with people playing meaningless drinking games, but I I don't want that to be the description of our capital markets. I want our capital markets to be meaningful, uh, reflecting information properly. So I agree that it is a mystery of how information gets into stock prices. But I mean, let's go back to 1999. At least in 1999, I think there was 
legitimate differences of agreements. And there were some people who thought pets.com was going to work and some people didn't think pets.com that worked. And that, that's a, a good description of optimistic, uh, uh, optimistic speculative bubble. I don't think that's a good description of the events of this week. I don't think anyone said, here's a, a prudent analysis. And uh, yeah, so I, I agree that I wouldn't want to leap. To, I wouldn't want to condemn anyone as a moron. Um, but that, that, that there's something bizarre going on and it does have the ability to impact the rest of our financial system. So it's just like, I'm not sure I would say the stock market crash of 1987 was irrational, but I'm sure it wasn't desirable and is not uh, a desirable feature. It could be necessary, but it's not desirable. I do want to point our listeners, so perhaps this is the wrong place to go because the thing I've really learned from your work is is the the ninety nine percent where where we agree and and before we start our own drinking game about this stuff is that this is a phenomenon where there's a game being played uh, by people who are at least relatively smart playing a game for some reason and there it's a fairly complicated game and the outcome that we're seeing if we don't like it we need to understand is something about the rules of the game rather than just say oh the people who are doing it are dumb and uh, you, you've written very I've learned a lot about the rules of the game and how they lead to this this crazy outcome. Well, let me just say thank, thank you for your overly kind words. Very nice. No, no, you wrote great papers, which is why I keep plugging them. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to close. So you gave a, uh, a set of comments at the NBR um, Portfolio uh, Management uh, Conference uh, last week, which I've been bugging the NPR ever since to put up on video so that we can share them with the rest of the world. Um, but uh, this was before GameStop blew up, uh, but you were suggesting uh, that something similar was infecting the rest of the market that we seem to be to some extent like 1999 in a very highly valued um growth stocks, meaning stocks that had better darn well grow or we will have end up overpaying <laughs> quite crazy amounts with similar phenomena, betting on new technologies, uh, you know, Tesla that's worth God knows how much more than Ford and GM put together right now, uh, volatility, a lot of trading activity. So you, to, to the extent you can in a couple seconds, um, that what the high points of that discussion, and we'll try hard to get it all up on the web soon. Love to. Okay, so first of all, what is a bubble? We've kind of been uh, referring to it without defining it. I think there's two definitions of a bubble. The first is what, what we've been talking about, the Harrison and Krebs bubble, where there are differences of opinion and short sale constraints, and you add them together and you get over stuff prices that everybody agrees is too high. So um, I think the, the necessary ingredients for that are disagreement. So first question, do we have massive disagreement today? And they're and not about this week, but about like the whole pandemic. I think we do. We have some people who think we're the, 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 the economy is going to be great. Some people think the pandemic is going to get worse, whatever. So by measurable, uh, observable metrics, uh, there is huge dispersion and disagreement in beliefs that we've never seen before. So that's the first element of what we need. And um, as you've stressed, trading volume. When you get disagreement, you get trading volume, and the trading volume tells me that that is that those ingredients and those symptoms of a, of a bubble are there. So the second definition of a bubble is more the Schiller definition of a bubble, where it's just like a a positive feedback loop, and that's uh, maybe more about what's happened this week, where you have uh, a bunch of people who are uh, inexperienced who hear that the price is going up, they're not sure what to do, but the other people are getting rich, so they come in. 
And I think that's the retail uh, element, and that's the way. That's the the retail part of it this week. That is the way in which I think this is a classic bubble or has elements for classic bubble. So those two things make me think. Uh, uh, those two things are like 1999. We have disagreement and we have a tremendous, uh, or maybe not tremendous, but an observable retail uh, element uh, of new inexperienced traders. So I think um, the other uh, ways to in which this is similar to 1999 and does look bubbly, bubbly is just like in 1999, you have very expensive money-losing stocks, which are going up and a very cheap, profitable stocks, which are not going up. So there's some sort of disconnect between uh, earnings uh, and prices and the value spread, which is how cheap value is relative to how cheap growth is. Uh, that's been widening. And just to relate it back more to your world and your uh, interests, John, um, it seems like 2020 was a great year for the CAPM. Uh, because the market went up and nothing else, no other strategies did. You could also argue maybe it was a Good year for the Fama French three-factor model in the sense that Fama and French always said value was risky and value measured distress. And um, that sure looked to be true in 2020. It wasn't a great year for value, but it might have been a great year for value as a risk factor. So the, w- the ways in which um, it's maybe different from 2020, and this is obvious to everyone, is just interest rates are very different. So, uh, sorry, the ways in which it's different from 1999. So I'm not sure... I would want to say that the whole stock market is a bubble or, or the whole stock market is the whole stock market does not look uh, uh, expensive necessarily relative to bonds. Right. Um, but it does look like value stocks look very, very cheap relative to growth stocks. So that's the sense in which it looks a lot like 1999. We have a huge gap between value and growth and we have that seemingly caused by retail investors. I'll, I'll fill in for, for listeners. So value stocks mean stocks whose price is low relative to dividends and long-term earnings. Those did uh, quite well historically, uh, but in the last couple of years, they've done very badly. And in the last year, they've done especially badly. And our our friends who uh, who run value stock companies are in this uh, un- unenviable position of saying, we just lost a lot of your money over the last couple of years, but the prices are so low now that it's a really good deal going forward. And they found that a hard uh, argument to make. Well, uh, Owen, I think uh, you and I won't be buying Game Stock uh, anytime soon, uh, although we hesitate to give investment advice on this show. <laughs> I won't, I'm not going to give any advice, John. Good. That would be dangerous. Owen, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me today. This has been a great conversation. My pleasure. Hope to talk to you soon. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.